George Whitfield was a phenomenal preacher of the gospel. He lived in the 1700s. We are told that he preached 18,000 sermons, averaging 10 sermons a week for the better part of 35 years. Over the span of those 35 years of preaching, there were more than 10 million people who heard him preach. Now keep in mind, this is before the days of mass communication. This is before the days of mass transportation. Many of the people that heard Whitfield preach uh, were those living in the American colonies of the early 18th century. When I told that information to my wife, she simply looked at me and said, you got a lot of work to do. Ten sermons a week, 18,000 sermons to be preached, 10 million people. There were hundreds and thousands of individuals that came to faith in Jesus Christ because of the preaching of George Whitfield. And one day, he was asked the question, Mr. Whitfield, how many people have converted under your preaching? And this was his response. I don't know, but give it five years. He went on to write that it's the observable obedience over a period of time that reveals authentic faith. Observable obedience over a period of time that reveals authentic faith. Whitfield understood that far too many people are more enamored with making decisions than making disciples. Did you know that over the last seven years, 905 people have joined this faith family? Nearly 300 of them have walked through the waters of baptism. If you were to ask, how many converts do we have over that span of time? I would have to tell you, I don't really know. But give it about five years. Because observable obedience over a period of time reveals authentic faith. The truth of all of this is seen in the book of Judges. There is a cycle that many of us are becoming familiar with. As we think about and walk through this great Old Testament book, we see the disobedience of God's people. It brings about discipline from God Almighty. The bottom of the barrel, they call out in despair unto the Lord. He hears them. God always hears our cries of despair. He responds by raising up a judge to deliver them. And they delight in the Lord for a period of time, as long as that judge lives. But once that judge dies, the cycle begins again. This morning, I want to introduce you to one of the greatest judges in the book. Her name is Deborah. She's the only female judge. In fact, the Bible says of her that she is the mother of Israel. I think that God raised up this female judge because God's people were being a bunch of babies and they needed a pacifier. And so God raised up the very first super nanny, right? He raised up the very first female judge. Her name is Deborah. And this morning I want to preach a sermon that's entitled A Woman's Intuition. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to take it and turn to Judges chapter 4. I want to invade the story in verse 14 and then conclude by reading verse, uh, up through verse 24. If you have your Bible, if you've turned there, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Judges chapter 4, I'll begin at verse 14. 
This is what the word of God says. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor, followed by 10,000 men. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword, and Sisera abandoned his chariot and fled on foot. Ah, but Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Harosheth Hagoyim, and all the troops of Sisera fled by the, fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Sisera, however, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite, because they, there were friendly relations between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the clan of Heber, the Kenite. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent, and she put a covering over him. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone here, say no. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer, went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground, and he died. You think? <laughs> and he died. Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with a tent peg through his temple, and oh, by the way, dead. On that day, God subdued Jabin, the Canaanite king, before the Israelites. And the hand of the Israelites grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, the Canaanite king, until they destroyed him. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. Allow me to give you some of the background of our story. At the beginning of chapter 4, verse 1, we read that when Ahud died, Israel once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. It's that great proverb, chapter 26, verse 11, that says, As a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool returns to his folly. All of our sin is folly. All of our sin is foolishness. And the author of the proverb says that we are as dumb as mutts. We are as dumb as dogs. For as a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool returns to his folly. Have you ever stopped to consider the monotonous mockery of sin? You and I return to sin over and over and over again, just like the people living throughout the book of Judges. It was Dale Davis who said it is difficult to become creative in sin. The sin you commit has been committed before by others. The sin you commit has probably been committed before by you. It is difficult to get creative in sin. It's difficult to conjure up something brand new that's never been done in defiance to the Lord. The sin you commit has been committed by others. The sin you commit has probably been committed by you before as well. And so, Many times we ask ourselves, why can't we break this cycle? Why can't the people of the book of Judges break the cycle of sin? And part of the answer might be is that we're more enamored with decisions than disciples. Another way to answer it is to say that we major on religion instead of relationship. 
I mean, we're religious people. The people living in the book of Judges, those Israelites, they were religious people. Having religion is not enough. It doesn't break the hamster wheel. It doesn't break the cycle of sin. We return to it again and again and again. And the only solution, the only hope that we have is to have an ever-growing, ever-vibrant relationship with God Almighty. I would contend that the people of Israel in the book of Judges, they were low on their relationship with the Lord. It's one thing to have religion. It's another thing to have relationship. When you have religion, holiness is based upon you adhering to a list of rules of do's and don'ts. But when you have relationship, holiness is based on Christ in you, the hope of glory. When you have religion, religion is only satisfied by you having a external influence over your life to live a certain way. When you have relationship, it's not external, but it's internal influence of the Spirit of God where you want to please the Lord every day of your life. When you simply have religion, your, your, your desire to please God is only alive when people are watching. But when you have relationship, your desire to please God is alive even when no one is watching. When you have a religion, then what you pursue, what you're enamored with, is the supernatural stories that you can tell. But when you have relationship, what you're enamored with is taking your cross daily and following Christ. There's a difference between religion and relationship. And so many times we major on making decisions for the Lord instead of making disciples of Jesus Christ our King. So I think what's going on in this story and what's happening in Judges over and over again is that they have a lot of religion, but they have little relationship. They continued to disobey the Lord. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And in verse 2 of chapter 4, we are told that the Lord sold the Israelites to the Canaanites. What a brutal statement. The Lord sold his people into discipline. The Lord sold his people into enslavement because of their defiant disobedience. The Lord sold his people. The Canaanite king was named Jabin. Uh, he had a military leader named Sisera. Uh, Sisera was a sinister dude. I mean, he was a cruel man. We are told of Sisera that he had 900 iron chariots. You may think to yourself, that doesn't sound like a big deal. I mean, look at us. I mean, we've got planes. We've got tanks. We've got drones. I mean, they only had 900 iron chariots. They got nothing compared to what we have in our military. But Put it apples to apples, comparison to comparison. We are not told that Israelite had any iron chariots. So they're outmatched. They're outmanned. The Canaanites are brutal against the Israelites. They uh, enslave the Israelites for some 20 years, for two decades. And finally, they cry out to the Lord. Finally, the Israelites say, enough is enough. God, will you please help us? We know we're in this condition. We know we're in this mess because we've messed up once again and we have gone the path of disobedience and you are now disciplined us for the last 20 years. God, will you please deliver us? And God says, I will deliver you. And what you need is a super nanny. 
What you need is somebody to give you a pacifier because you've been acting like a bunch of babies for the last two decades. So he raises up the mother of Israel. He raises up Deborah. Now, Deborah is not a military leader. Uh, She is, in the most traditional sense, a judge. She sat in court in Ephraim. She would hear cases on a daily basis. She would decide uh, what ought to be done based upon the law of God. She loved the Lord. She was wise in her decisions. In fact, Scripture calls her a prophetess. It's not the first time that the Bible uses that label for a godly gal. Uh, It's used of Miriam, the sister of Moses in the Old Testament. It's also used of Anna in Luke chapter 2, who was waiting for the redemption of Israel as she lived there at the temple. Uh, Both Miriam and Anna are called a prophetess. This lady here, Deborah, is also called a prophetess. She speaks the very voice of God. She is the mouthpiece of the Lord. She hears God's word and she delivers it faithfully. She is wise in her decisions. She is prudent in her actions. She is a great judge. You can think of her not only as a super nanny, but also as Judge Judy. She ain't going to take no malarkey from anybody, right? I mean, she does her work well, and God raises her up to be the judge, to deliver. Now, in her wisdom, she says, we need a military leader. So she called a man from Naphtali. His name was Barak. And so Barak was there. He was a good military leader. He was a strong leader. He was a highly decorated leader. And we are told uh, that the word of God came to Deborah and said to uh, Barak, hey, listen, God is going to give us the victory. He's going to hand over the Canaanites. You are going to slay them, and and, and you are going to be victorious. Now, you would expect when he hears this word of deliverance, when he hears this word from the Lord, he's going to do a happy dance. You expect him to have a moment of celebration. Instead, he has a moment of hesitation. It's never a good idea to hesitate when it comes to the word of God. It's never a good idea that when God gives you his word, when you read his word, when you know what you ought to do and you refrain from doing it, it always turns out poorly for you. Such is the case for our military leader, Barak, of our story. He hesitated. He said, listen, if you go with me, I'll go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Now, at first read, that sounds like it's pretty promising. It sounds like he's really respecting Deborah. It sounds like he's saying that I have so much respect for you that uh, where you are, there God is. And so I don't want to go anywhere without you, so where you go, I will go. It sounds like that's what he's saying, but I think actually what he's saying is, I don't really believe you. I don't believe it. And in fact, if you really believe it, then then you've got to put feet to your proclamation. And if you go, then I know you'll really believe it and I'll go with you. But if you ain't going to go, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to listen to you. Now keep in mind that in these days, uh, it was very much a male-dominated culture, especially in the military. So in Israel's military, they would not have a superior leader who was a female. So this guy, Barak, he thought to himself, why should I take instructions? Why should I take commands from this female judge? If you don't go, I ain't going. If you do go, I'll go. I think his hesitation cost him dearly. Whenever you hesitate against the word of God, it always costs you dearly. She says in verse 9, Well, 
the Canaanites will be given over, not for your glory. They'll be given into your hand by the hand of a woman. You will be humbled. And you probably will be humiliated. If you think about the rest of the story, that's exactly what happens. He is humbled and he is humiliated. For he's not the one that gets Sisera. There's another woman who nails Sisera to the floor, literally, with a tent peg through the temple of his skull. And so this guy, Barak, he is humbled and he is humiliated all because he did not accept the word of God as it was given to him. Well, you get down to verses 15 and you realize that the Canaanites have assembled there on Mount Tabor. The Canaanites are there in the hill country at the foothills of the mountain. The Israelites have made their way up to the top of Mount Tabor. And it's at that moment that Deborah says to Barak, go, go. In verse 15, you find the thesis statement of the entire chapter. It's just a few word phrase, and it simply reads like this. The Lord routed Sisera. That's it. That's the point of the story. The Lord routed Sisera. The way the story is written, it's almost as if it is a funnel cloud that points you to that phrase. Everything comes, everything is culminated, everything is summarized in that one statement of verse 15. Deborah said to Barak, go, now's the time to get the Canaanites. He makes his way down the mountain. The Canaanites make their way up the mountain. There is a clash on the mountain and the Lord routed Sisera. The Lord routed Sisera. Let that sink in. The Lord routed Sisera. It doesn't say that Deborah routed Sisera. It doesn't say that Deborah plus Barak routed Sisera. It doesn't say that the mighty army of Israel routed Sisera. It is the Lord who routed Sisera. Lord spelled capital L-O-R-D. It's the one God of the universe. It's Yahweh himself. It's the one who flung the stars into space, taught the sun how to shine, told the ocean only come so far, heaped up the mountains as high as he wanted them to go, carved out the valleys as low as he wanted them to go. It is the Lord, the maker of everything seen and unseen. It is God Almighty, the king of the cosmos. It is the Lord who routed Sisera. This morning I'm going to give you two takeaways, and here comes the first one. The first one is this. The Lord is bigger than your battles. The Lord is bigger than your battles battles. The point of this story is to show us that the Lord is the one who is bigger than your battles. Regardless of what you battle this morning, regardless of the battle that you bring into church, regardless of the battle that drags you into church, regardless of the situation or scenario that you find yourself in this morning, I came to tell you the Lord is bigger than those battles. The Lord is bigger than your battles. He's bigger than your problems. He's bigger than your cancer. He's bigger than your unemployment. He's bigger than inflation. He's bigger than your problems with your family. He's bigger with your relationship woes. He is bigger than any disease that may be racketed your body. He is bigger than any worry that keeps you up at night. He is bigger than anything. The Lord routed Sisera. I've told you this before and I'll speak it till my last dying breath. There are some things in this world that money cannot fix. Some things in this world that the military cannot fix. Some things in this world that Congress cannot fix. Some things in this world that the president cannot fix. Some things in this world that doctors cannot fix. 
something in this world lawyers cannot fix, something in this world that teachers cannot fix, something in this world that coaches cannot fix, something in this world your charisma cannot fix, something in this world that you cannot fix. But there ain't nothing in this world that Jesus can't fix. Jesus can fix anything. There ain't nothing that Jesus can't fix. I know that's bad grammar, but it's great theology. The Lord routed Sisera. The Lord is mighty in battle. The Lord is bigger than all of your battles. The Lord is bigger than all of your problems. The point of the story is for the reader to get to verse 15, to see that phrase as it jumps off the page, illuminated off the page, the Lord routed Sisera. It is God who gave the victory. Whatever you have going on in your life, whatever situation, scenario, or setback, whatever problem, predicament, whatever prognosis, whatever the issue is, I want you to know and to believe that God is bigger. He can handle it. We are told on that day that none of the Canaanites escaped. It says that the Lord routed Sisera. The word uh, routed is a word that means to throw into confusion. It means to bring about chaos. It actually is a word that usually is used in reference to a severe storm. That when a severe storm would come, it would rout anything along its path. Now that's interesting and ironic. Because the Israelites are fighting against the Canaanites. The Canaanites did not worship Yahweh. The Canaanites worshipped Baal. Baal was believed to be the god who controlled the weather forecast. More times than not, Baal is portrayed as standing on a cloud with a thunderbolt in his hands. He is portrayed as the one who controls the weather forecast. He's the one that sends the rain. He's the one that sends the severe storm. Yet in our story, it is not Baal, but the Lord. The Lord routed Sisera. If you were to read on in Deborah's song in chapter 5 of Judges, you would hear her description of what happened that day, that the river basin began to swell, and the iron chariots were stuck, and the men were sitting ducks right there in the, in the river. Now, how did the river swell? Was it water from beneath that caused it to swell? Perhaps. Was it water from above that came down from the heavens? In all likelihood. It is God who showed himself strong and mighty. It is God who sent the severe thunderstorm, not Baal. Because the Lord routed Sisera. God is able and God is capable. There is nothing outside his jurisdiction. Every so-called God and goddess of any culture is muted in the presence and face of God Almighty. God Almighty is in a class all by himself. It is the Lord that routed Sisera. You come to that phrase and God gets all the praise. Not Deborah, not Barak, not anybody else in the Israelite army, but the Lord routed Sisera. Not one Canaanite fled, for they all fell by the sword. We are told that uh, Sisera, the leader of the Canaanites, he escaped on foot. He went to the region of the Kenites. The Kenites had an arrangement with the Canaanites. Uh, they said, uh, 
if you protect us, we will be favorable towards you. So in other words, you scratch our back, we'll scratch yours. And so he knew that he probably would find safe passage in the land of the Kenites. So Sisera went to that area. He went to the house of Heber. He found Heber's wife, Jael. Jael was outside the tent. Jael, she's pretty crafty. I mean, Jael, she, she's, uh, she's kind of sly. She says to Sisera, hey, are you looking for a place to stay? You can come into my tent. You come right on in and, 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 and we will protect you. My husband and I, we will protect you. And he comes in. He says, thank you so very much. You know I'm thirsty. I am so thirsty. It's been a long journey. I'm thirsty. Uh, can you give me a glass of water? And she says, I'll do one better than that. I'll give you some fresh milk. The fresh warm milk will be soothing to you. It will, it will help your aching bones. And it might even enable you to catch a little bit of sleep. So I'll do one better than water. I'll give you some fresh milk. She gave the milk. And of course he was exhausted from the journey, from the run. But he was also now soothed by the milk in his stomach. And he went to sleep. And he was fast asleep. And Jael even covered him up. Isn't that nice? She brought out a blanket. She covered him up. That was very kind, very sweet. She waited for him to be fast asleep. How did she know he was fast asleep? Well, he probably didn't have his CPAP machine. And so he was really snoring, really sawing logs. See, he had forgotten the CPAP before the battle. He didn't have it with him. And so he was there snoring and sawing logs. She may have gone up and gotten real close. Boo! And he's still asleep. He's fast asleep. So she tiptoes over. And she just conveniently had an extra tent peg right there on the floor. And right beside it was a hammer. That's all she needed. She took the tent peg, placed it in the temple, on the temple of that sleeping military leader. And with the hammer, she raised in the air and with probably just a few swifts, boom, 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 nailed the old boy's head to the ground. There's a tent peg through his temple all the way through his skull outside the other temple and nailed him to the ground. I don't know if he ever woke up. I don't know if he ever opened his eyes. But she nailed him to the ground and the Bible writer has to tell us and he died. Do you think so? Have you ever been able to survive a tent peg through the temple of your skull? No. The Bible author tells us that not once but twice because when the military leader comes and finds him, the Bible says, and he was dead. No fooling. Exactly. That's what happens when a tent peg is driven through the temple of your skull. And as she did that, then she went back outside and she waited for the leader of Israel. She waited for Barak to come. And he came through and she said, hey, I know who you're looking for. He's right here in my tent. And I'm sure that that Israelite military leader thought to himself, great. He drew his sword, I suspect. Thought, you know what? I will go in and I will slay him. 
He went in the front door of the tent. <laughs> he went through the living room of the tent. He was there about to enter the bedroom of the tent. And there he saw Sisera. He was there lying on the floor with a tent peg nailed through the temple of his skull into the ground. And oh, by the way, he was dead. And Barak just kind of stepped back. And he said, uh, thank you? Um, okay. Well, I guess I'll be on my way. I thought I was going to kill somebody today. I guess I'll, I'll just, I'll go. And as he made his way back to Mount Tabor, where Deborah was, I think Deborah's words began to echo in his mind. On this day, that leader will be given to you by the hand of a woman. Deborah was not talking about herself. She was talking about the woman named Jael. And now Barak feels the humility, the humiliation, because he was hesitant to take in obedience the word of God. We are told that on that day, the Israelites subdued the Canaanites. Their hand grew stronger and stronger over the Canaanites. If you get to the end of chapter 5, you'll discover that there was peace in the land for 40 years. As long as Deborah was judging, there was peace. She lived four more decades. Now, already you got a sneaking suspicion that I bet when Deborah dies, they're probably going to fall into disobedience again. But as long as she's alive, they delight in the Lord, and there's peace in the land. I told you there's two takeaways. The first one being that the Lord is bigger than your battles. Second one is this, that the Lord is the main character of every story. The Lord is the main character of every story. If I were to ask you, who's the main character of this story, who would you say? It's not Deborah. It's not Barak. It's not Sisera. Definitely not Sisera. It's not Jael. Who's the main character of this story? The answer is the Lord. Remember, everything in the story points you to verse 15. The Lord routed Sisera. So the Lord is the main He's the hero of the story. He's the main character of the story. He's the one calling the shots in the story. He's the one pulling the strings in the story. He is the one who is in charge of the story. After all, history is his story. What's true in this story of Judges chapter 4 is also true in your story, regardless of what chapter you're in in your story. God is the main character of your story. Your life is not all about you. This world is not all about you. This world, uh, this, this culture, this church this congregation, this community, it's not all about us. We are not the epicenter of the cosmos. It is all 
about the Lord. It is all about God Almighty. God is the main character of my story. God is the main character of your story. God is always the main character. Whether you acknowledge him or not, whether you realize it or not, I came to tell you that God is the one who's in charge of all things. God is the main character of the story. And everything God does, God does well. Yes, we are loved by the Lord. Yes, we are adored by Christ. Yes, he lavishes his love upon us that we may be called children of God. But the reason he does all that is not because we're so good. It's because he is so great. It's all about him. It's all about his glory. It's all about his might. It's all about his fame. It's all about his reputation. It's all about the Lord God Almighty. So God is the main character of this story. And God is the main character of every story. If you stop and consider it, in this story and, and even in your story, God does great work on mountains, doesn't he? Where does this story take place? We are told the story takes place on Mount Tabor. And on Mount Tabor, there was a, there was a collision between the Israelites and the Canaanites. And on Mount Tabor, what happened? Verse 15 happened. The Lord routed Sisera. God does great work on mountains. You know, there have been chapters of your life uh, where you have really felt close to God. Uh, you felt close to the Lord. And how did you describe it? A mountaintop experience. Uh, why did you describe it in those words? Well, probably because you believe a mountain is high and God is high and exalted. So the higher I am on the mountain, the closer I am with God. And so it's a, it's a mountaintop experience. Well, maybe that's why you describe it that way. But in the scripture, you look at the landscape of the Bible, you'll find that God does a lot of great work on top of mountains. It's not just here at Mount Tabor. Think about Mount Moriah. It is there that God provided the ram caught in the thicket so that Abraham could sacrifice that ram instead of his one beloved son, Isaac. You think about Mount Horeb. It's on the backside of Mount Horeb that Moses, that, that uh, old shepherd, was minding his own business. And there God spoke to him through a burning bush that was on fire but not being consumed. It captured the attention of that seasoned shepherd. He went over to take a look and God spoke to him right from Mount Horeb. It was just uh, some years later that God directed Moses and the Israelites to come back to that same region, told Moses to go up Mount Sinai, and there he received the word of God. God gave the people his word through the mediator, the man, Moses, and God came down on Mount Sinai, and he etched on tablets of stone the Ten Commandments, the very word, the law, the stipulations of God Almighty. And God handed his word to his people on Mount Sinai. You think about Mount Carmel. It is there that Elijah has a showdown at high noon with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. 
for they have come to declare that Baal is God. But Elijah has come to declare that Yahweh is God. And on that day, it is God who showed up in powerful acts of, of, of fire and provision. And God demonstrated that he is the one true God of the universe. Think about the mountain of transfiguration. It's there that Jesus goes up with his three closest friends, Peter, James, and John. And in that moment, the veil of his humanity is lifted. The deity seeps through, and his face and his clothes were as bright as, 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 uh, as bleach could get them. And it's Peter who speaks up when he sees Moses and Elijah flanking Jesus on his right and on his left. And Peter says, this is a good thing for us to be here. Let's put up a shelter, an object of worship for you, for Moses, for Elijah. A cloud envelops them. The voice of God speaks. And when the voice of God spoke and the cloud left, Jesus was there all by himself. Because Jesus is in a class all by himself. He is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He is the fulfillment of everything Moses and Elijah foretold. Jesus is in a class all by himself on the mountain of transfiguration. And of course, who among us can forget what God did on Mount Calvary? It is on that mountain, that hill outside Jerusalem, that Jesus the God-man stumbled through the streets of the sacred city with a crossbeam strapped to his back. His back was so bloody, his body was so bruised that nobody even recognized him. He barely looked human, let alone alive. He made his way through the streets. He went up the skull-shaped hill called Golgotha. The Roman soldiers stretched him wide and they nailed rusty spikes through his wrists and his feet, hoisted him into the air. And a few hours on that faithful Friday in the third decade of the first century, God did great work on that mountain. You know what God did at Mount Calvary? It is God who routed the devil. It is God who put death to death. It is God who nailed your sin to the cross so you bear it no more. So praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh my soul. God does great work on mountains. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin and left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Jesus paid your sin debt, friend. He paid the penalty that you deserve for all of eternity. He took it upon himself. He bowed his head. He gave up his ghost. They took his dead body off the cross. Placed him into a grave, rolled a stone in front of it, and y'all look like you know what happened next, but I'm about to tell you what happened next. On the third day, the dead man got up again. God does some great work on mountains, on Mount Calvary. God, the Lord, routed the devil. And for 2,000 years, the devil has been roaming around in chaos. He's been thrown in confusion. A severe storm came upon him. The storm is named Jesus the Christ. And Jesus is victorious over sin, death, hell, and the grave. I came to just remind you, or just to tell some of you, that the Lord is always the main character of your story. Regardless of what chapter you're in, you may be in a good chapter of life. You may be in a stressful chapter. You may be in a dark chapter. You may be in a chapter where you can hear the very voice of God. You may be in a chapter of life where you feel like God has abandoned you. And I want to tell you, regardless of the chapter you find yourself in today, God is the main character of your story. There are two questions that are 
embedded in this story, and I contend they're embedded in just about every story of the Bible. That woven in the 66 books, you can hear the echo of the very voice of God where he's asking you, his creation, do you trust me? Will you obey me? Do you hear him asking that in Judges chapter 4? He's asking that to Deborah. He's asking that to Barak. He's asking that to Jael. He's asking those questions. Do you trust me? And will you obey me? Those two questions God repeatedly echoes, not only in this story, but in your story. And my question to you today is, can you hear his voice? Do you hear the echo of the questions? Regardless where you find yourself in life, do you hear him asking you at this station, at this stop, at this season, in this chapter, in this problem, in this scenario, in this predicament, do you trust me? And will you obey me? Those who only have religion answer those questions at best with a maybe. Those who have a relationship with the Lord answer both those questions with a resounding yes. Yes. I trust you. And yes, I'll obey you. Friends, those are the questions. How do you answer? If you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus as Savior, I want to tell you that the Lord routed your enemy at the cross of Christ. Your sin debt's been paid. Jesus longs for you to come to him in faith and he will take up residence in your life and he'll be the king who calls the shots and he's a tremendous main character on the stage. If you've never trusted him as savior today, I encourage you to do so. If you're here today and you have trusted Jesus, but let's just be honest, you're in a chapter, you're in a season, you're at a stage and it is difficult. Maybe you just need to come here to the altar and pray. Maybe you need to ask somebody to come with you and pray over you, pray with you, pray for you. Maybe you're praying for yourself, for your family member. Maybe you're praying for your future. Maybe you are embarrassed about your past. Maybe you're fearful about the days to come. You don't know what's going to happen, and you just need somebody to come and pray with you. Maybe you need to come and ask a minister to pray for you. Whatever it is that God is urging you to do, whatever he is, when he's asking the question, do you trust me? Will you obey me? I want you to have a resounding yes, 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 I trust you. And yes, I obey you. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give this invitation. Father, have your way in our congregation, in our lives, in this season, in this chapter of life. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.